I always smile when I hear that song because many years ago when I was a youth pastor, uh, actually in Muncie, Indiana, I had a, uh, a couple of good teenage young men who, by the way, are now pastors, but uh, at that time they were young preacher boys and they, they did different things. They would speak in the youth department or they would lead singing in the youth department, that sort of thing. One of them, his name was Shane, uh, one Sunday morning sang that song, but he had everybody sing it different and he had them set up before I got in the room, so I didn't know what they're going to do. And he sang it more, more us about Jesus. More, and I was like, what, what, are they, what are they saying? But actually, that wasn't a bad way to say it. Morris needs to be more about Jesus. But anyway, uh, I, every time I hear that, I still see Shane up there, that wicked little smile on his face. He's a pastor in Pennsylvania now, and, but it's been a long time since I thought about that. A uh, couple quick announcements. Don't forget about uh, we're collecting cereal for Good News Ministries. Those uh, boxes, those uh, barrels, I guess I should say, are out in the foyer on both sides. If you saw them this morning and you thought they weren't very full, well, they're very full. In fact, they were overflowing. We had to take stuff out of them. Uh, that will go to the mission later tonight. Uh, that's uh, in the foyer still packed away there. That'll go to the mission tonight. Uh, so we filled them up once. We need to fill them up again. You guys are doing an excellent job on this. I really appreciate that. Uh, we're doing that through the month of October. So I think we can fill them up three or four times. Amen? And so if, you have a, if, you have, if, you, if you're like me, you think about those things when you're in Sunday school, and then the rest of the week you don't think about it, and then you come on Sunday morning and go, I was going to do that. And then you bring it on Sunday night, right? That's how that typically works, and that's okay, as long as you remember. So uh, that's out front in the foyer. Make sure you take care of that. Uh, our upcoming missions conference, November the 9th through the 12th, you have a special opportunity during the missions conference. Uh, I'm not going to pass this around, but this is just one of the sign-up sheets out there. We'll be putting together for the mission conference uh, with volunteers 15 to 20,000, yes, I said that right, 15 to 20,000 Portuguese New Testaments. And so uh, when I say putting together, I mean you'll be doing the folding, the stapling, and all that kind of stuff. There are sign-up sheets out in the foyer, right on this side of the uh, foyer, right behind the, that wall, that look just like this one. And what it is, every day there's a sign-up sheet, and you can sign up for uh, a certain time that you can come and work. You can sign up for several times. Obviously, with 15 to 20,000 of them, we're going to need a lot of workers, and we're depending on you. This is going to be a mission conference where you personally get your hands involved in, in helping in the mission field, not just give some money and come to a service, but you need to get busy and do something. And so let me encourage you to do that. Uh, that those are out in the foyer. i got to remember to take that back out in the foyer before I leave. And then also coming up in November is our Thanksgiving luncheon. We have our annual Thanksgiving luncheon on Friday the 17th of November. Uh, that's at noon. We do need you to sign up for that. Uh, so uh, if, uh, if I can get a guy to take this around, this is the hardest auditorium in the world, the hardest classroom in the church to sign up for something. But we need to pass this around. Any guy, anybody? I need to, thank you, Stephen or, or Justin or whoever. Yeah, anyway. Uh, so uh, you don't need to sign up what you're going to bring or anything like that. All you need to do is sign your name so we have a head count. So if you're interested, Justin will pass and be walking around with that. Then also there's a Sunday school lesson. It is a new Sunday school lesson. I know you're expecting me to finish last week's Sunday school lesson. I'm not going to finish last week's Sunday school lesson. I just, I just set it aside and got a new one. Now, let me tell you what happened. So this week I'm studying and I'm still trying to, I, I know this sounds crazy, but after 45 years of ministry, I still struggle with the idea of the order of Melchizedek. There's, a, there's just some things in that that in my brain 
I can't set in the right order uh, and how it worked out. Well, I was doing some research this week. I think it was actually Tuesday. Uh, and I'm just going through uh, different internet resources and looking at different books in my, uh, in my office there. I have a little library. And I'm going through and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to say this so that the average person understands it. Well, I came across this article uh, about, by uh, Dr. Duncan. Now, I don't know Dr. Duncan. I don't know a whole lot about him. I know he is a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and a seminary teacher at Fuller uh, Seminary. So that's all I really know about him. I would not, based on that alone, suggest you go read all of Dr. Fuller's material, right? Uh, Some Reformed Presbyterian stuff is good. Uh, Obviously, they're Reformed Presbyterian. We're Baptists. We won't agree on some things. You you have enough sense to figure that out all by yourself, right? So I wouldn't agree, I wouldn't, I'm not recommending his material. But once I read, I read this the other day, I think it was, like I said, I think it was Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, and I read it, and it cleared up some things in my head. And I was like, this is good. And then my first thought was, steal this, rewrite it a little bit so it sounds like you. You guys are looking at me like, you didn't think that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have flesh just like you do, and my flesh tempts me. And I, I thought about it, and I'm like, you know, you can't do that. And so uh, I, just, I just reprinted his article. I did leave out some things in, in the article. It has been a little, and I mean slightly edited. Uh, but I thought this was probably the best explanation I've ever heard about Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek and how Jesus Christ figures into that. I don't think I've ever read anything that, w- that produced such a clear picture of it. And in my mind, there was, there's always been this one question. I'll get to that later. But there's always been this one question that I can't answer, okay? And, and, and it's just like, okay, so, okay, we know a little bit about him, you know, from, uh, from, the book of, from Genesis, his appearance in Genesis 14. We know a little bit about him from what we read, what David wrote in Psalm uh, uh, 110. And we know uh, he's mentioned eight different times in the book of Hebrews from chapter 4 to, through chapter 7. And we, that, that's all the information we get. So you, it's kind of a scattered thing, right? And trying to put a, a logical concept behind it has been difficult for me. I think I, think I got it. Oh, actually, let me be honest. I think Dr. Duncan got it, okay? Uh, and so I'm going to look at his notes, and I want you just to follow along with me. Most of you know we're, in he, we're going through the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. That is the longest passage on Melchizedek in the Bible. Uh, so uh, we went through that a little bit last week. We talked a little bit about uh, Genesis chapter 14 and what had happened at his first appearance. So I won't go in detail about that, but we'll move along uh, with these notes. So if, if you're reading his notes, it says simply here, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them with me to Hebrews chapter 7. You should already be there because that's where we're studying this morning. And we're looking at those first 10 verses. Actually, we'll look at the whole chapter, but uh, those first 10 t- verses in particular. Um, he, he, he makes this note. He said, before you... Before you get to chapter 7, make sure you read chapter 6 and make sure you read the last part of chapter 6 because chapter 6, those last couple of verses in chapter 6 make you think about what's coming in chapter 7. Last two verses in chapter 7, I'm chapter 6, which we have hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth in that which is within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a word in there I'm going to bring out later that I have never really thought much about, okay? Uh, and that's the word forerunner. Jesus, the forerunner. I want you to keep that word in your mind, okay? Because I think that's going to help you out a little bit 
understand where we're going with this lesson this morning. So that's chapter six. That's the last part of chapter six. Go back to your notes again, right in the middle there uh, where it talks about uh, chapter six and talks about Melchizedek. We've said so far as we've worked through Hebrews together that the theme of this book is better. He agrees with us on that. We would say the same thing. The idea of this book is better. Uh, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is better than the whole Levitical priesthood. Uh, Jesus is better than Abraham, and Jesus is even better than David. So if you think about that, we're talking about Jesus as a better priest, and Jesus is a better king, right? And that's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness and king of peace. And so both of those things fit. So the whole idea, again, we're talking to Hebrew people scattered abroad in different churches who are still leaning towards Old Testament Judaism, and being brought into New Testament Christianity, the fulfillment of what came before. They're not quite there yet with the fulfillment. We are. I said this early on, and I think I'm correct in this. Most people in this audience, uh, you're New Testament Christians, you raised, uh, were raised in a Baptist church or raised in at least a Bible-believing church, and you don't have a question about Jesus' authority uh, as, the, as the high priest or Jesus' authority as the king. That's how we accept him, that we understand that in the New Testament. Understand that those, those early Jews did not have that same relationship that you had. They didn't grow up thinking of Jesus the way you think of Jesus. It was something they had to, in a sense, and I, I'd be careful with this word, they had to convert to, okay? And I, I don't mean they had to change religions. I mean they had to be converted in their thinking of Old Testament Messiah, New Testament Messiah as a fulfillment of the Old Testament not a warrior king, someday will be, right? But not a warrior king at that point. And that's just hard for them to accept. I mean, I can understand it in a sense. Uh, if you came into our church uh, and said, you know, God's revealed new truth to me, and here's the new truth, and here's, the, here's what he's told me, and you wrote it all down, and you stood up in the pulpit and said, okay, the New Testament, the old, New Testament was fulfilled in the Old Testament, and now the end of the New Testament is fulfilled in my writing. How many of you would have a problem with that if I stood up and said, here's the new thing that you need to know? Yeah, there'd be a lot of us be going, what? Well, kind of understand in a sense, that's not exactly how it worked out, but in a sense, that's how these Jews felt, okay? So if you can put yourself in that position, you understand it. So again, the author of Hebrews, I'm still in that, second, that first paragraph. The author of Hebrews is arguing to his congregation and also to you and me that Jesus is the Savior we need. He's the priest we need. He's a better Savior. He's a better priest than we'll find anywhere else. And he's piled on biblical arguments, that, and that's what he's going to do in this passage today. He's a... Not only is he a better savior, not only is he higher than the angels, not only is he more important than Moses, but he is a better priest. In fact, he is a better priest, not just than the Levitical priest, not just than Aaron himself, but than the entire priesthood, he's better. And by the way, he is better, amen? Aren't you glad you have such a high priest that understands the feeling of our infirmities, who knows how we feel, okay? Uh, so we understand that. So again, go to the second paragraph. If you were to look at Hebrews 4.14, you'll see that Jesus is called the great high priest. We've looked at that before. And throughout this section from chapter four to chapter seven, various arguments were made to show that Jesus is the high priest. Then you go back in chapter five, uh, and verses five and six, he's mentioned for the first time with Melchizedek. But as we said earlier, when we were studying chapter five and six, there really wasn't almost a point to it. It was just like, Oh, after the order of Melchizedek. It just kind of was thrown in like we understood it, right? And when you looked at those passages, you're kind of like, what does that mean? 
Well, when you get to chapter 7, we have an explanation. So that's where we are. So you know that Melchizedek, again, third paragraph, you know that Melchizedek is only mentioned two times in the Old Testament. We've already talked about that, Genesis chapter 14. We won't read that paragraph, but if you want to go back and read it, if you weren't here last week, you can grab last week's lesson and go back to that. Uh, he's also, next paragraph, he's also mentioned another time in Psalm 110, verse 4. It's in that psalm that brings, that begins, uh, it's the psalm of David and says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You'll see that in... Uh, uh, repeated in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. That same phrase mentioned again. By the way, Jesus also mentioned that same phrase. I think it's, I wrote it down, Matthew 22. Matthew 22, in the middle of that passage, uh, verses right around verse 40, 42, 43, somewhere in there, uh, he mentions that again. Jesus mentions that same passage from one, uh, Psalm 110. So while it's only mentioned in Psalm 110, it's repeated again in Matthew. It's repeated again in Hebrews my Lord said to me, and Jesus was saying, how could the Lord say that to his Lord if he wasn't, literally Jesus, wasn't higher than the high priest, wasn't higher, wasn't the king. And the Jews didn't like that. They, they thought, this guy's claiming to be God. And by the way, he was. Amen? He was claiming to be God. Before Abraham, he said, I am. And I, I love it when people argue me that, that Jesus never said he was God. Well, what about that passage? Before Abraham, I am? By the way, I know that he said that, and I know what he meant by that, not just by what he said, but I know what, what he meant by what, how the Jews reacted. What did they, how did they react? You remember the story? How did they react? They took up stones to kill him. Why? Because he claimed that he was God. So I love it when people argue stupid arguments with me. Some of them are so easy to get with. Some arguments are tough. Some of them are like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't know what New Testament you're reading, but that's not true. So anyway, uh, you get that passage from Psalm 110. You get the passage from Genesis 14. Now, all of a sudden, you get to, you get to Hebrews, and I said Paul. I, at, you see, I inserted that in the last paragraph. Uh, the, he's, um, Dr. Duncan doesn't make a, a definite call who wrote the book of Hebrews. I think it was Paul, and so I'll keep saying that. Uh, so look at the last paragraph. Now, why is Paul talking about Melchizedek rather than uh, this rather obscure person from the Old Testament? How many of you would say when you read through Hebrews, before we took this class, and you read across that name, you did the same thing I did? What does that mean? How many of you would say, yeah, I don't, that's weird. In fact, when you get to chapter 7, chapter 7, if you're not paying attention, if you're not doing some in-depth study, it's kind of confusing, right? And so that's what we want to settle this morning. So uh, here's what he says, because we, he wants you to understand something about Jesus. Now, here's, here's the key to this whole thing for me. Here's something Dr. Duncan straightened out for me. I don't know who the man is, but I thank him for this. I'm reading the passage, listen to this, and you're doing the same thing probably. I'm reading the passage trying to figure out who Melchizedek is. That is not the emphasis of the passage. You say, well, what's the emphasis of the passage? The emphasis of the passage is telling the Jews who what, who, who is. Who Jesus is. The passage is not about Melchizedek. The passage is about Jesus and who, he's trying to tell them who Jesus is. He's not trying to explain to the Jews who Melchizedek is. And I've been I think most of my life as I'm studying, I'm trying to figure out who Melchizedek is. But when I look at it, I have to look at it from the other side. What is this passage telling me about Jesus? 
I don't, anybody ever do this? You're reading and you've read something for years, maybe months, and you've been stuck, and all of a sudden, somebody gives you the key. I've done that when Pastor Monty's preaching sometimes. I'll be listening to something, and he'll say something, and I'll go, oh, that's good. He said something, some of you may remember this, he was talking about baptism and how baptism is not part of regeneration, because if it was, he would have the authority to reject you, your salvation. I won't baptize you. You can't be saved. I never even thought about that before. I was like, whoa, wow, that's a good argument. I've never even, then, then the power would be vested in him. He could turn you down and say, no, we won't baptize you. And if baptism is part of salvation, he could deny your salvation. He said that last Sunday and I was like, oh, I'm going to remember that. If I'm talking to somebody about baptismal regeneration, that's a good argument. Anyway, uh, so go on. So the fundamental point, I'm at the bottom of the page. So the fundamental point of this study is not that we would come away with heads crammed with facts about the Old Testament figure Melchizedek, but that we would know Jesus, uh, that we would understand who he is and the offices he holds for us, and, he would, uh, uh, and would trust in him more. Now, let me change this just a little bit. Remember, we're writing to the, the Jews. Here's what, here's what, 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 read it this way. So the fundamental point of Paul's argument in this writing especially is not that the Jews would come away with their heads crammed full with information about Melchizedek, but rather that they would understand who this Jesus is and how, how valuable he is to them over Old Testament Ju uh, Judaism. That make more sense? Anybody with me so far? It really is a good way. It is the actual right way to look at it. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than Aaron. He is better than Levi's. You need to know who he is. Not who Melchizedek is. Now, we're going to talk about Melchizedek, but get your, your, your form in the right place. So go to the next page. So Paul wants you to know uh, just what a great Savior and what a great high priest we have. You've come here today with big problems, and if you're like me, you have. Uh, you have big sins, and you need to know you have a Savior and priest who is big enough to deal with them. And by the way, not just big enough to deal with them, but big enough to understand them and big enough and powerful enough to be a savior who can forgive them. Again, New Testament Christians in our society today, you get that, right? You've got the whole New Testament. You've studied. Those Jews did not have the whole New Testament in hand. They did not know what you know. And so they had to be convinced that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient not only to save them, but to forgive their sins and to be their new high priest. That's hard for them to give up their old religion. I mean, for, even for you, you would even admit this. How many of you were in a church before you came to Faith Baptist Church and you struggled whether or not to leave? Even if you knew something's wrong. How many of you did that? Look, look around. You'll see a lot of people. Do. I hate, I, and I've changed churches mainly for ministry reasons. I've been here 15 years before that, I was at another church for 20 years. And when you're at a church for 20 years and you change churches, that is a weird feeling, right? I mean, it was hard for me not to be the same. I mean, not to want to go back, right? I didn't change because there were problems. There's other reasons, but uh, I felt like God moved me. But even in that, it was hard. Can you imagine giving up the way you worship for another way of worship? This would be difficult for, and you understand something about the Jews. Uh, so keep reading. Uh, top of the page. This is ultimately why the author of Hebrews is writing these words. This is an argument that's going to continue all the way to chapter 10. You'll see that because we'll talk about how this sacrifice is better than that, than uh, Old Testament sacrifices, how this, uh, 
the church is better than the tabernacle, and he'll go through this whole concept as we go through these chapters. So the purpose of the argument, look at the bold print. The purpose of the argument is to show the superiority of Jesus and thus the superiority of our hope, of our assurance of forgiveness of sin, and therefore the superiority of our assurance of salvation. The teaching about Melchizedek is designed to help you to understand that you have a big enough Savior to deal with your problems and a priest who is able to deal with your sins. I don't know about you, but that brings a little comfort to my heart. Here's my problem. Jesus saved me from my sin, from the penalty of sin forever, right? Past, present, and future. I still struggle with sin occasionally. Okay, daily. Okay, let's be honest. I still struggle with sin. And I need a high priest that understands that. I need a high priest who has the power not only to forgive me, but to cleanse me, right, from all unrighteousness and restore that fellowship that I once had with God. I need, I need that kind of a high priest, and I have that kind of a high priest. The Jews of this day did not understand that. You understand what I'm saying? They didn't get that. They had, to, they had to get a dove or an animal, and they had to make a sacrifice, a temporary covering. They didn't understand. This was all new to them. And so now they need to be presented that, listen, this is better, right? The theme of the whole book of Hebrews, this is better. So you're getting it. All right, so go to the next, next sentence. So let's bear that in mind as we get ready to study the Old Testament figure from this misty, mysterious past. He's introduced to us in verse 20, chapter 6, verse 20, where the author says that Jesus has gone before us as a forerunner. He was a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A long discussion about Melchizedek in, that, in chapter 7 follows that. And I want you to see two or three things that, are, uh, that, that help us to focus, okay? Here's the first thing, and we talked about this. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. All right, we've already looked at that. That's fairly obvious from chapter uh, 7, uh, verses 1 through 8. That's the main, main argument, that Melchizedek is great, was greater than Abraham. And he gives that illustration. Uh, well, let's just read it so I, I make sure we get the whole thing. The first thing we see that was Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. In fact, by the passage and implication of the passage, uh, you'll notice that Melchizedek's not only greater than Abraham, but Melchizedek was greater than David. Now, you say that to the Jews. Again, you New Testament Christians, you're like, yeah, of course he was. Okay, well, understand, you say that to a Jew today. Jesus was greater than Abraham. Jesus was greater uh, uh, than David. You're going to have an argument on your hand. Try that with any Orthodox Jew today. They're not going to agree with that. First of all, they don't agree he was the Messiah, but that's going to be a problem, right? Well, that was a problem then. It's never going to stop being a problem for the Jews, okay? So look at verses 1 and 2. When Melchizedek appears, uh, he meets Abraham. What does he do? He blessed him. Now, think about this. Okay, I'm going to give you his argument in a, in a nutshell. When Abraham was blessed, Abraham was blessed, and he was to be a blessing to who? Who was Abraham to be a blessing to? The entire world. Abraham was supposed to not be the one who was just blessed, but Abraham was the blesser. In Abraham, eventually, we have Jesus Christ, the blessing for the whole world, right? So Abraham is the one who should be blessing, but when Abraham wins this battle, Melchizedek comes to him. Abraham doesn't bless Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. I'm, I'm sorry, I said it backwards. Melchizedek doesn't bless Abraham. Abraham blesses him. And you're like, wait a minute, that's weird. So look at it again. Uh, look at the notes, your notes here. Where am I at? Uh, I lost my place. 
Anyway, second paragraph under that. Now understand the context. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Lot was, had been captured. You know what happened here. Abraham uh, gets his troops together. He, he brings him back. When he comes back, he's met by Melchizedek, okay? The name means king of righteousness uh, and Salem, king of uh, peace. That is the king who reigns over the territory in which the city of David, now the city of Jerusalem, will be, eventually be located. The king of Salem will come out and appear before Abraham, and he, Melchizedek, will bless Abraham, when Abraham's the one who won, Abraham should be blessing him. But Melchizedek's the one who's doing the blessing. Think about that in a minute. Now that's huge because Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we're told that God blessed Abraham and that he blessed Abraham so that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So when you encounter this king of Salem, this Canaanite priest, okay, uh, the king of righteousness, you're expecting Abraham to bless him. You're expecting, you're expecting for Abraham to bless him because Abraham received God's blessing. And Abraham's job now is to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. But it's Melchizedek that blesses Abraham. The author draws the attention to that in verse 1, uh, the last part of verse 1 in our, cha- in our version. And he blessed him, right? And notice in verse 7, without contradiction, the less is blessed by the greater. Long, long part of the argument. You can read verses 1 through 7 yourself. But basically it's this. The greater always blesses the lesser. In other words, God blesses us. That's the way it's set up. The lesser doesn't bless the greater. So the argument to the Jews is because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Who does Melchizedek represent? Jesus Christ. If Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, what does that say? What's the emphasis here? Jesus is greater than Abraham. It's just that simple, okay? I know it's a complicated way to get to it, but that's exactly what he's saying. So keep reading because it gets a little bit more interesting. Last paragraph. So Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham shows that he's greater than Abraham. But not only that, Abraham tithing to Melchizedek shows the greatness of Melchizedek. You guys remember uh, the kingdom of Salem comes to, in this story, we said this last week, the kingdom of Salem... Uh, Genesis chapter 14 comes to Abraham and says what? I want the spoils, right? You should, you should give this to me. And Abraham doesn't give it to that king. He gives it to Melchizedek, okay? So he's recognizing Melchizedek as a higher authority. And the fact that Abraham gave a tenth of that to Melchizedek shows the greatness of Melchizedek. Next page, real quick. So what's the point? The point is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, right? We know that. Uh, go down, keep reading. It's also the point, by the way, in passing that Melchizedek was greater than Jerusalem, the king of Jerusalem before David. Why is the author of the Hebrews telling you that? Because he wants what he said in verse six, chapter 6, uh, at verse 20. Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then Jesus is greater than Abraham and David. And that's just the first part of his argument, okay? Everybody got that so far? Pretty simple when you kind of boil it down. You're all looking lost to me. Shake your head like this if you're still with me. Everybody still with me? All I'm saying, listen, all I'm saying verses 1 through 7. Jesus is greater than Abraham because he's after the order of Melchizedek who was greater than Abraham. Still with me? <laughs> you're looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know why I'm in here this morning. Okay, well, let's keep going. I think this will help you. So Melchizedek not only is greater than Abraham, uh, in his notes he says he's greater than Levi. I would say he's greater than Aaron, he's greater than Levi, and he's greater than any Old Testament priest. Okay? 
In fact, he is the summation of all Old Testament priesthood. So now here's the second part. Not only is he greater than Melchizedek, greater than Abraham, he's greater than Levi. Uh, and you know that's where the priests come from. Uh, so he gives this concept, uh, as you keep reading, if you were from the tribe of Judah, you couldn't be a priest. If you're tribe of Levi, that's the only tribe you could be a priest. So the author of Hebrews argues that Melchizedek was greater than Levi and therefore greater than the Old Testament priesthood because Levi wasn't even born yet, right? There was no Levi. So how is he a priest? So his priesthood came before the Levitical priesthood. So it is a higher priesthood, right? So if Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, then his priesthood is higher. By the way, I still haven't got to the point where I figured it out. If you're still saying, I still don't see how all this fits in. Wait, wait a minute. This is good stuff, okay? So keep reading. So here's what happens. So now he tells you two more things about the superiority of Melchizedek. First, he has no genealogy. He came from nowhere, okay? We don't know anything about him. In fact, that's exactly what he says. Uh, what is that in verse 3? Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest forever. By the way, you might want to underline that little phrase too. In that He was made Melchizedek. Think about this was made like the Son of God. Now, in your mind and in the Jews' mind, maybe you don't think like they do, they're thinking, how is that possible? Melchizedek can't be made like the Son of God because when Melchizedek was born, there was no, the Messiah wasn't here yet. Jesus wasn't here. Or was he? Was he? Right. Jesus came before Melchizedek. Here's the beauty, okay, get this, because I'm going to run out of time. Melchizedek is foreshadowing the Messiah by being the king and priest. Jesus foreshadowed Melchizedek because he was first. In other words, there was the Son of God, there was Jesus Christ, uh, there was the third person of the Trinity. His coming is foreshadowed in Melchizedek. Melchizedek is in the middle. He is not, it's not Melchizedek, then Jesus. It's Jesus, Melchizedek, Jesus the Messiah. You with me? And if you understand it that way, you see the importance. And that's all he's saying to the Jews. Hey, it's not there was a Melchizedek and Jesus is as good as him. No, no, no. He was before him. He, is the, he was showing not just the New Testament Messiah coming. He was showing you that there was an eternal one who had no father, had no mother, uh, had no, no earthly origin, Right? And so he gives you this foreshadowing, and it gets kind of interesting. So he tells you through the genealogy who he is. And second, unlike the Old Testament priests who changed year after year because they lived and served and they grew old and wore out and died, he's a priest forever. So in those ways, he was superior to Levi, right? Furthermore, look at the way he says in verse 5 and 6, the sons of Levi who received the office of the priesthood have commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. Not only that, was he was, he was actually before the law. He, he was actually to receive those tithes before there was a law to tithe, which is interesting in our New Testament concept because a lot of people in the New Testament say the tithe is not required. The tithe has always been required, even before the law, right? It, it supersedes the law. So, uh, yeah, Baptist preachers, yeah, we, uh, Baptist churches, we teach the tithe. It's a biblical concept. It was, it, there was a tie before. the. Some people say, well, the Old Testament law is done. We don't have to do with the Old Testament law. Well, this was before the law. That hasn't changed, by the way. So look, go down to the next to last paragraph. So we're told in verse 6 that this man does not have a, uh, his descent from Levi received tithes from Abraham. 
So again, the superiority is signified. Notice that we're told in verses 9 and 10, Levi also received tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's kind of a complicated... Through his seed, he would eventually be doing that. Now, what's that mean to show? Well, it's meant to show that Jesus is greater than Levi and greater than the Old Testament priesthood because he's a priest, not according to Aaron, not according to Levi, but according to Melchizedek. Look at the next page. The whole argument is this. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Jesus' priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek and therefore is greater than the priesthood of Levi, Aaron, and all the Old Testament priesthood. Understand that? Everybody still with me? Now look at the next part. This is the part where I was like, hey, now I get it. This is what I wanted to get to, and I'm going to have time to get it. In the final analysis, Hebrews 7 through 10 does not argue that Jesus is like Melchizedek. That's the backwards argument. Jesus is not like Melchizedek. What's the argument? What is he saying to these Jews? Melchizedek was like Jesus. So we turn the argument around sometimes, we try to figure out who he is. No, 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 we're trying to figure out who Jesus is. We're trying to show them who Jesus is. Okay, so keep reading. Um, look again at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. Now that statement about, is about Melchizedek. And the statement is that Melchizedek is like Jesus. It's not that Jesus is like Melchizedek. It's that Melchizedek is like Jesus. Now he says, this is mind-blowing. When I read this next paragraph, I didn't, say my, I didn't think mind-blowing. I just went, hang on. I get it. Look at the next. Look, this is, if you don't remember this paragraph, if you don't remember anything else. He says this. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is not like the figure who existed hundreds and hundreds of years ago before he came into the world. But rather that Melchizedek is like Jesus who existed before Melchizedek. It's that Melchizedek is the shadowing of someone who existed before he existed. Jesus, Melchizedek is not the foreshadowing of Jesus later. Melchizedek is the, the shadowing of one who's already appeared. Oh. Oh. In my mind I went, oh, well then that makes sense. Now I got it. It's not about him, it's about who? It's about Christ. Keep reading because it gets even more interesting. By the way, there's one reason why some, some interpreters go back to Genesis 14 and they see either Christophany or Theophany. Christ either appeared or God appeared in a pre-incarnate appearance in Melchizedek. I still don't know if that's what happened here. I still struggle with that in my mind. I'm not going to say affirm either way. I used to say it was a Christophany end of story. In other words, it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't know if I can say with authority that's what it is. I, leaned, I will say I lean that way. Here's what I found. I figured out this week. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's not the argument. The argument is who, he, who Jesus is. Focus on that. That's the, that's the discussion he's, doing to these, he's giving these Jews. The author of Hebrews is pressing us on two massive truths about Jesus. First, he is eternal and therefore his priesthood always has been and always will be eternal. Amen? Is that good? That makes sense. When I, re- I was like, well, that, that clears it up. That's all I need to know. Second, he as God, he, he as God, therefore has, he is God, I should say. He is God and therefore he has the power of blessing us. He blessed Abraham. Abraham didn't bless him because he is God. And that was a foreshadowing of what, who Jesus is and who Jesus always has been. 
when I, in my mind, what I had to do, and I don't know if you have to do this, when I read this argument, I've always had Melchizedek and Jesus. I've always had it in this line, right? That is not the way it's presented in the Bible. It's presented this way. The eternal king and priest, shadowed as Melchizedek, shadowed as, what, as our Savior today. I didn't have that first part. And that's where I was kind of like struggling. Well, how does he just appear? He didn't just appear. He has always been. And this is a picture of him in Genesis chapter 14. It is a picture of him in Psalm 110. And now he's telling the Jews in Hebrews, it is a still him. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I can see that, right? To me, that clear, it may not clear it up to you, but it cleared it up for me. Look at the next paragraph. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Levi. Jesus' priesthood is according to Melchizedek. Therefore, he's greater than Abraham and Levi. This is the emphasis. Jesus is the eternal priest. In fact, that's explicitly said. He abideth a priest continually. Or you could say, he abideth a priest forever. Forever. He is still our high priest. Now, with that, why is that so important? Because these New Testament Jews have not yet grasped the fact that the Old Testament priesthood was a faint foreshadowing of the priest. Uh, okay, think of it this way. He's trying to say to them, look, nothing was wrong with the Old Testament priesthood. It was just incomplete. It just covered sins. It did not forgive sins. There is now a priest, a high priest, that not only covers sin, he forgives, he eradicates it. He gives you a new nature. This, he's saying to these Jews, is better. Amen? That's our, the argument is about Jesus. The argument has nothing to do with who Melchizedek is or how he appeared. You can argue all you want about whether this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or a pre-incarnate appearance of God. And why did it, that, that's not the argument. The argument is, who is Jesus? By the way, that is always the argument in every church, isn't it? And should be. Who is this Jesus? And we have to emphasize who he is and what he has done and is still doing for us. Amen? That, that's, that's what you got in Hebrews chapter 7. And to make it anything else, to make it about Melchizedek, I think we go wrong. It's about Jesus. And that's all, I just needed somebody to hit me in the head and go, hey, dummy, quit talking about Melchizedek, start talking about Jesus. And when I figured that out, I was like, well, now it makes sense. Amen? I just needed that little right direction. So keep reading here. Uh, next paragraph. In fact, the Old Testament priesthood was inferior to Melchizedek's priesthood. Uh, Melchizedek's priesthood was just a picture of the eternal priesthood of Christ. Jesus is the priest that you need. He doesn't wear out. He doesn't tire. He doesn't falter. He doesn't fail. If you have sin, he ever leads to intercede. If you have sin, he died once and for all for your conscience is clean. You'll read that in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, 10. Uh, the Old Testament sacrifice had to be offered over and over. They were only a covering for sin. And again, we're going to draw this out now from this argument for the next few chapters. Jesus died once and that sacrifice was sufficient. Amen? was sufficient. Now he ever lives to intercede for those who trust in him. Jesus is the priest you need. Jesus' priest is eternal and perpetual. It never goes away. It never wears out. It's not only that Jesus is eternal and that his priesthood is perpetual. It's that Jesus is the one who blesses, the one, who, uh, the one to whom he gives the promises. He gave the promises to Abraham and then he blessed Abraham on top of the promises. Isn't that what he does today? Think about that. His promise to forgive our sin if we confess our sin... And he continues to bless us. And that's who Melchizedek is, is, is a picture of. Right? 
get the argument in the right order. The, the author of Hebrews is telling you that it is through Jesus uh, that Abraham was blessed. It is Jesus who is the one who blesses. Notice the emphasis here twice. Verse 1, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Verse 6, Melchizedek blessed him with... Uh, uh, Mel Melchizedek blessed him who had the promises. So why is that emphasized? Last page. I can't believe I'm actually getting through this. Because the author of Hebrews, some of you are like, you're going 900 miles an hour. That's why you're getting through it. I know. Uh, but it's all written down so you can read it for yourself. The author of Hebrews is emphasizing that Jesus is the one who is able to bestow all the blessings of the promises of God. Okay, again, not about Melchizedek, but about Christ. If you turn your back on Jesus, now he's talking to the New Testament Jews, if you turn your back on Jesus, you're turning your back on the one person who can bestow all those promises to you. So as the Jews, they're hanging on these Old Testament promises, right? The fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, right? That all the nations are going to be blessed through them, that there's a Messiah coming. And if you turn your back and you reject Jesus, you've rejected all of the promises that you built your religion on. Everything is fulfilled. Listen, can I say it in a simple way? He's saying to these Jews, everything's fulfilled in him. Don't focus here, focus here. This is the fulfillment of all that you've studied all your life. This is he who came. This is your Messiah. You get it? And so that's, that's how the argument goes. You know there's a passage, uh, I won't read that. Go down to the next to last paragraph. You can read some of this on your own. The author of Hebrews is saying to his Jewish Christian congregation, do you know who it was that blessed Father Abraham? It was Jesus. Do you know where you can get that blessing or promise? Only through Jesus. If you turn your back on Jesus, you, you cannot, re you, can you receive the blessing of God? No, you cannot because they are bestowed by Jesus. And Melchizedek is just a picture of that. Okay, in my mind, that's what I need. To, that, that helps me understand it. Uh, I love what he ends here. He says, my friends, in your struggles with your problems and in your fight against sin, the priest that you need is the one who is eternal and perpetual, continually. And when he blesses, no one can take that blessing away. You see, that's why the author of Hebrew is telling those, these things about Melchizedek, because it wants us to know that we, we also, like them, have a great high priest. Amen? I thought that was a great article. I thought it, was, it kind of really helped me understand it. I hope it helped you understand it. And I hope if you don't get anything else, you have a greater, better Savior than the world ever deserved. Amen? Aren't we thankful for that? Lord, we thank you for our Savior. We're thankful for what Jesus Christ not only did for us, but what he is continuing to do for us. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we'll put our simple faith and trust in him, not just for salvation, that's the most important thing, but for our daily living knowing, Lord, that we can bring our sin to him and he can cleanse us and make us righteous again and restore our fellowship with Christ on a daily basis. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be humble and willing to sacrifice and give and to do what we can do to stay close to him. I pray that you'll help us to be uh, like the author of Hebrews, like Paul said, to be willing to tell the world we have the answer. We have a better Savior. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed. The worship service will start shortly.